Hello and welcome to the Securities Compliance Podcast presented by the National Society of Compliance Professionals, where it is our mission to help you put compliance in context. I'm your host, Patrick Hayes, partner at the Calfee Law Firm. And on today's show, I am thrilled to welcome back in David Scalzetti, Senior Director of Regulatory Products and Strategy at ICE, as part of a two-part program looking at the impact of data on compliance. In the first part of our interview, David looked at how data can help support your firm's compliance program in any number of areas, including portfolio management, liquidity, valuation, and fund reporting. In today's part two of the program, David will focus on how data can dramatically support firms trying to navigate new regulations, especially in areas affecting mutual funds and broker-dealers. In our headline section, we reviewed two recently adopted rules from the SEC that expand the definition of broker-dealer under the SEA. And finally, we'll wrap up today's show with another installment of Outtakes, where we review another significant enforcement action relating to text messaging and related messaging applications. Diving into the headlines portion of the show, the SEC recently adopted two new rules under the Securities Exchange Act to further define the term, quote, as part of a regular business, end quote. The new rules expand the scope of firms that are required to register as broker-dealers and as government securities broker-dealers. Under SEA Rule 3A5-4, the definition of a broker-dealer, and under SE Rule 3A44-2, the definition of, quote, government securities broker-dealer, apply to firms that are engaged in the buying and selling of securities and of government securities, respectively, as part of a regular business, end quote. By changing the definition of the phrase, quote, as part of a regular business, end quote, the SEC amended the SEA to expand the activities that are deemed to be dealer activities and thereby the scope of firms that are required to be registered with the SEC. As newly interpreted by the SEC for purposes of Rule 3A5-4, the term as a part of a regular business means, quote, a firm engaged in buying and selling securities that has the effect of providing liquidity to others by either quoting at or near the best available prices on both sides of the market for the same security if the quotes are accessible to other market participants, or earning revenue primarily from capturing bid-ask spreads by buying at the bid and selling at the offer, or capturing any incentives offered by trading venues to liquidity supplying trading interest. Rule 3A44-2 is identical except that the word government is added, so that a regular business refers to buying and selling government securities." End quote. In the new rules, the SEC carved out from its expanded definitions the following categories of entities. Persons with less than $50 million in assets, SEC-registered investment companies, and central banks, sovereign entities, and international financial institutions. The new rules also contain an anti-evasion principle, which states that no person shall evade registration by either engaging in activities that would indirectly result in registration or, quote, disaggregating accounts, end quote. The adopted rules dropped provisions contained in the original proposal, which included certain language that would have required firms to register based on, one, the fact that they went flat in a security and at the end of the day, they went flat in a security at the end of the day after trading, or two, 
where firms exceeded certain volume limits with respect to transactions and government securities. The SEC also dropped requirements that would have required aggregation of trading activities conducted in affiliated entities that were acting wholly independently, such as where an investment fund with the same legal entity as an investment advisor, but with different owners of the funds, uh, different portfolio managers, and even different trading strategies. Uh, the effective date for the new rule is 60 days after publication in the Federal Register, and the compliance date is set to be one year from the effective date. As you might expect, the commissioners narrowly adopted the rules by a 3-2 to two margin, with Commissioners Mark Ueda and Hester Peirce dissenting. So, what's the key takeaway here? Certainly, the version of these rules that was originally proposed by the SEC extended the definition of dealer in ways that could not plausibly be justified. In addition to containing provisions for, again, the aggregation of legally separate entities with different owners that were acting independently, which, again, could not possibly really be aggregated for purposes of registering as a, as a dealer. These final rules are certainly a substantial improvement there. Again, had the final rules been put forth as they were in the proposal, and combined with a fulsome and convincing cost-benefit analysis, the proposal itself would have been worthy of discussion, even if one was not ultimately persuaded by those justifications that would have been put forth by the SEC. Instead, the way that the rules have been adopted, as has been the case with quite a few other recent rulemakings from the staff, you know, this one seems to also be vulnerable, potentially, to judicial challenge for reasons of both statutory interpretation and under the Administrative Procedure Act. It is also worth noting that the SEC's statement that firms engaged in, crypto, in, in cryptocurrency trading activities are potentially within the scope of the rules seems to simply be another attempt for the staff to try to prohibit trading in cryptocurrencies through uh, another form of regulation that d does not seem to be the, the more traditional path. Finally, the time given for the dealer registration requirement, uh, many have argued, seems to be significant significantly too short here. It is not just a matter of firms now potentially having to register with the SEC. Assuming that those firms that are engaged in some of those current activities don't want to reduce the scope of their business in order to avoid subjecting themselves to the new requirements, many firms might actually have to then restructure their business substantially if they did want to avoid it. And so, I think there's going to be a pushback from the industry to potentially uh, allow for some additional cushion time there to come into compliance. For some additional detailed analysis of the benefits that the SEC argues will result from the new rules, one should go to Commissioner Mark Ueda's dissent or to that of Commissioner Hester Peirce. As we move into the interview section of today's show, we welcome back David Scalzetti to go into part two of the impact of data on compliance. For those that joined us for part one, David talked about the impact of data on compliance specifically in a couple key areas of focus for the regulators right now, areas like valuation and liquidity, and how certain rules that are out there that may be even applicable to 
mutual fund or other advisors, how those rules really and some of the uh, requirements underneath those rules can ultimately become best practices for really any firm that is looking at updating and enhancing its valuation policies and procedures, how it's, appro- uh, how it's approaching certain asset classes, as well as the way that they might use liquidity in the management of their clients' portfolios. So, thank you, David, for coming on the show to talk about that. And certainly, for those that maybe uh, skipped an episode, episode or two, I would highly recommend you go back and listen to that episode with David. Uh, But for those that are new to our show, quick introduction on David. David Scalzetti is uh, a CFA, uh, joined um, ICE Data Services in uh, 2014, ICE shorthand for the Intercontinental Exchange. So, ICE Data Services in 2014 to lead its regulatory products initiatives. He's uh, as I mentioned, he's a CFA analyst and has over 20 years of experience really in dealing with all different types of, of products uh, and regulation. But he has also specifically added experience uh, since he's been at ICE, um, and he, he and his team help monitor for new regulations like Basel III. Um, like FRTB, like MIFID II, other liquidity regulations, in addition to, as you referenced on that first show, you know, five to 600-page SEC proposals on any number of different items <laughs> and changes involving things like the Investment Company Act, as well as tax regulations. He holds a BA in Economics and Philosophy from Binghamton University, uh, which I did a better job of saying this time around. And we are incredibly pleased uh, to have David back on the show. David, thank you so much for joining us for, for part two of the impact of data on compliance. Yeah, thank you again, Patrick. As a reminder, the opinions I'm about to express are my own and do not represent that of ICE or any other organization. Thank you for for hosting again, Patrick. I, uh, I look forward to really rolling up our sleeves in a couple of examples of where data and compliance, I think, uh, really intersect. Yeah, so let's dive into that. And thank you for for teeing that up nicely uh, uh, for me, David. You know, I think, look, it's no secret for those listeners of this show that we have seen a huge increase in uh, the, the regulations that have been, you know, proposed over the last several years, many of which have ultimately been passed um, and come to fruition. And now many of the advisors that, that listen to this you know, show um, and for a lot of our active registrants are going to um, have to come into compliance with. And certainly we've seen this and it's not just exclusive to investment advisors. I know one of the things we're looking to talk about today is even on more of the broker-dealer side of the house and some of the quotations that need to be provided there. But but I guess one certain rule that comes to mind that I think would be great for us to really dive into today um, and talk about how some of the new regulations ultimately um, are going to impose a lot of additional requirements on investment companies and the types of data that they're collecting and ultimately that they're going to need to use in order to make sure that they maintain compliance. And that is specifically the names rule. So maybe at a let's let's like we'll we'll uh, take a we'll start at this at even like the sixty thousand foot level maybe a little bit talk to us a little bit about for those who may not be familiar talk to us a little bit about the the names rule what it says and kind of what it requires of um, registered investment companies. 
So the names rule dates back to the dot-com era, really when the SEC was finding some nefarious actors were marketing themselves as technology funds because everyone was getting inflows in technology, although they may not really have been investing in true technology funds. So they introduced the requirement to have an 80% investment policy requirement for use of uh, thematic and industry-specific or even location-specific terms implied in the fund's name that at least 80% of the investments need to align with that. That rule was recently amended to add two things, explicitly add strategy terms like value and growth, which were considered exempt from the 80% investment policy, but also any sort of sustainability or ESG-related terms are now also in scope. So although this is something some funds have had to deal with for a while, the scope of funds that now have to consider this 80% investment policy is going to be significantly higher next year. Yeah, no, thank you for that. And, and you know, you, you, you see some of that positioning that you described from more of the regulator side and what they were looking for, even in some of the statements that came out, I know, from the press release that the SEC released back back in September, there was a quote uh, from you know Gary Gensler is stating that you know quote as the fund industry has developed over the last two decades again going back to your dot com uh, over the last two decades gaps in the current names rule may undermine investor protection. He then went on to say quote today's final rules will help ensure that a fund's portfolio aligns with a fund's name. Such truth in advertising promotes fund integrity on behalf of fund investors. And Patrick, I'll just add, um, it's not only unique to the SEC. We could also include on this, in the UK, they just finalized their SDR rule, their sustainability disclosure rule, where they've, they've implemented a similar, although with a 70% threshold, a requirement that investment holdings align with any sustainability or ESG terms implied in their in their name. Yeah, no, that's that's really good context, and again, helpful uh, for others just to get a sense that you're you're seeing an increase in the focus from regulators, not just stateside, right, but across the globe on this area and wanting to, again, more accurately reflect in the in the name what the fund is actually doing. And so let's let, let's dive in, right? Let, let's talk about some of the actual guts of the rule, right? And so, you know, talk to me about, you mentioned 80%. You know, can you flush that out a little bit? What specifically do uh, managers of a fund need to make sure they're complying with when it comes to having 80% of the underlying investments have certain particular characteristics? And what are other ways, I guess, that the second part of that question starts to dovetail into the the compliance part, (laughs) which is, you know, what are some of the ways that firms can better leverage the data that they're getting to make sure that they stay in compliance. So the investment policy requirements, the 80% test, 
is really, it, it is exactly a data play, right? So, so from my perspective, we view this as you have a value fund. Uh, you, you advertise that you're a value investor. Well, what does that mean to you? And not every value fund is going to have the same exact definition of what constitutes a, a, a value strategy. But whatever your definition is, the rule is going to require you to be transparent around that definition and then have a mechanism in place to weigh all of your portfolio holdings against that against that definition. So to me, that's a perfect place for a data provider to come in and offer a service of a rules engine applied to underlying fundamental and descriptive data to then be able to assess potentially in near real time so you can even understand the impact of potential portfolio holdings uh, yeah. and how that may impact whether it's in or out of scope of your 80% requirement. Yeah, that's I appreciate that kind of commentary there. One of the, the other things that sparks in my head is it would be both beneficial so that you could have a data provider come in, as you say, to potentially help you uh, better track the the underlying investments that are in your portfolios and how they stack up against your definition, right? Like you described, which I, I do think it's a little bit interesting. I mean, again, it's I, I recognize that, look, the, the SEC has a very difficult job sometimes because when they make things uh, too, you know, prescriptive, folks say, oh, well, you don't allow for any dynamism in the market and we should be able to tailor stuff to the way that we do things. And then when they make stuff principles-based, they say, I don't know where the bright lines are. <laughs> you need to tell me, you know, so they, they, they're often, that, that's, a, that's a difficult ask a lot of times. But, but I do think it's interesting that firms are kind of allowed to help define their own universe here a little bit with, with some of the different assets that are in play. But but then it's both like the track, you know, using uh, data to help better track the underlying investments in your own portfolio. But maybe, I mean, do, do other folks also use that information to benchmark like how they're viewing something that they might consider to be growth or value in a way where, you know, could, could you ever use any of that data or information to see how, say, your fund stacks up against other folks that are also considered growth managers or value managers or, or something like that? I think so. I think probably more crystallized example would be on the ESG side. So let's okay. say you're using the term sustainable right and you're advertising that you have some esg goal associated with your fund to me that's a perfect example of wanting to demonstrate how your performance is relative to either a benchmark and how how you're performing over time so so and, and i think the sdr rule in the uk does 
push for those types of disclosures where you do show relative to, you show KPIs, key performance indicators relative to the benchmark. So, you know, something doesn't have to be sustainable today if you're using your ownership as stewardship to improve the greening of those investee companies. But then if that is your strategy, you should be showing an improvement of the sustainability of those companies over time in whatever metric you consider to be sustainable. Yeah. Yeah, no, that that's a good that's a good point. You know, as you have seen certain firms you, you know, you utilize the the data and specifically with regard to again, like either staying in compliance with the names rule, but also in 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 other kind of I guess relevant areas to them managing their assets, you know, in compliance with the eighty percent investment policy, right? Where they, they've got certain policies and procedures in place. Have you seen other firms like maybe what or maybe a better way to frame it is what what other best practices do you see or what other tips or recommendations would you provide those firms that are going to have to implement uh, a policy in order to comply with the names rule? So, so although the names rule is, as we said, over 20 years old, we're only newly considering a service just based on the change in the scope of who has to do this and the inclusion of sustainability terms and the applications more abroad. But the concept of applying a client configurable rules engine to a data set is definitely something we do have extensive experience with. And I think there's a lot of areas where that can be a best practice. You know, fair value leveling to me is a under both GAP and IFRS requirements as a perfect example. so, so, so actually, but even before you go on, can you t- for some of our listeners who may not be familiar with what that that is, like the fair value leveling and stuff, can you flesh that out a little bit? Sure. Most entities that produce financial statements globally, whether it's here in the U.S. under FASB or globally under the IASB standards have to classify their holdings into one of three categories, level one, level two, or level three. For all intents and purposes, the definitions are observability-based, where level one are unadjusted prices uh, that are observed in the market at the time of measurement. Level two would generally be called the mark-to-market instruments, and the level three being the mark-to-model instruments. And and, and no two entities are going to have exactly the same same definition of exactly how they classify whether something falls into a level one, a level two, or level three classification. But as, as you said in our first session, we're a major con- hoover and consumer of market data for our core business in the evaluation side. And that's the same data that can help measure observability 
So to me, that's another just example of using a rules-based engine that clients can write rules on the breadth, agreement, and scope of underlying market data. In this case, for outputting, whether it's a level one, level two, or level three assets, compared to you know now repurposing that to use a different set of input data to determine if the holdings align with their investment policies. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's that's really, again, when, when you're thinking about how you as a firm can enhance what it is that you're doing to build your own internal controls, and the idea then that uh, you can take what is essentially the same data set but be able to manipulate it in a way that's going to be very impactful for you from both a portfolio management perspective, right? And we talked about that in our first show with regard to valuation and liquidity. And then now, kind of, again, even a further marriage of that it, with complying with something like the names rule to make sure that the way you're managing your portfolio and the types of underlying assets it has also keeps you in compliance and certainly helps your compliance program make sure that it stays on the straight and narrow with regard to your portfolio management activities um, is exactly where I think a lot of the legal and compliance nerds, <laughs> my friends and family listening to this podcast here, like they would want, they would want to live and breathe in that, in that space. Yeah. Uh, I, I, uh, from my perspective, data providers such as ourselves should have one goal. What can we do to help that audience, your your audience here, yeah. most seamlessly use data to simplify the and streamline the, those workflows that they're gonna have to do anyway? Right. Right. That make that makes complete sense. I guess you know, we we've certainly talked about a lot of these different rules, both in part one and part two, and their impact in kind of the investment advisor and, and in the mutual fund space as it relates to registered investment companies. But certainly there are other areas and, and for other market participants that are out there, um, including um, on the broker-dealer side, that have also felt the effects of new rules and regulations that are coming into play that ultimately are going to significantly impact you know how the firm is able to continue to uh, is able to continue its own operations and i know one of those relates to sec rule 15c2-11 with regard to quotations so maybe i don't know would love again for you uh, just to help set the table for our audience, talk talk to us a little bit about what that rule is, and maybe let's start with what that rule is, and maybe what uh, uh, what is now going to be imposed on those market participants that that could be challenging uh, without having the right data in place. Sure, sure, I, I'm happy to, and and, and 15c211 is going to be one of those rules that. Few people know about, but everyone should be aware of this. I think this has the potential to be the single most disruptive rule to the fixed income markets ever. 
so so I think this is really good that we're talking about this, and especially since it's another data intensive rule. So 15C211 dates back 30, 40 years and is really designed to have requirements for U.S. broker-dealers, SEC-registered broker-dealers, around their ability to quote OTC securities uh, publicly. And it was amended and finalized in September of 2020 to add greater investor protection protections to the rule. So one of the things the SEC observed is that a lot of the pump and dump schemes and Ponzi schemes were occurring in very thinly traded OTC equity securities. So let's raise the bar of of what analysis and data need to be available before you can quote those types of securities. So on the on the outskirts of it the amended the September 2020 amendments were really a really nice investor protection. The issue is the entire industry slept through the fact that the amendments were also applicable to the fixed income markets and not just OTC equity securities. So it became a point where now you had all these requirements of 20 or so prescriptive pieces of information that need to be reviewed before they can be quote, uh, quoted publicly over a quotation medium. And the only thing that was explicitly excluded were municipal securities. But effectively, everything else was potentially in scope as an OTC security. Oh, my goodness. When is so that again for folks who may may have been part of the audience that uh, didn't realize this was also going to impact fixed income? Talk talk to me about you know some of the timelines that are going to be in place and when compliance with that new part of the rule uh, comes into play. And again, maybe uh, I guess the, the final question, right, in addition to the timeline and uh, when the kind of you know compliance date is, but also what firms can do to make sure that, uh, again, they even for like the, in the fixed income space, they they don't run afoul and, and ultimately uh, engage in any violative conduct there. Mm -hmm. Okay, so a lot to unpack there as well. So let me start by saying the rule is effective now, but even prior to this rule going into effect, it was, it was I would say, early summer of 21, with the rules supposed to go into effect in, in, in fall of 21, when everyone realized the applicability to fixed income, and then massive advocacy started to get exclusions for fixed income. Now, although the SEC didn't grant broad exclusions of fixed income securities, they did provide some no action relief and much more recently, a permanent exemption for 144A securities. Uh, okay. But they've, they've issued three no action letters on this. The most recent one dates back to November of 22, which provides 
an appendix with eight types of securities that are excluded from this, and they've given a three-year a three-year period. So right now, I, I, our clients and and a lot of the broker dealers that I've spoken to on this have policies and procedures in place that are really data intensive to be able to identify those fixed income securities that are excluded and either prevent or speed bump their traders from openly quoting over quotation medium those securities that are still in scope. Um, so the service that we do really focuses on identifying what securities are exempt as per that no action letter and some of them are fairly complicated. These are not just straightforward, you know, the uh, exemptions based on the language and interpretations that, that I've observed from my conversations. But right now, the industry has a massive problem in that something's got to happen by, 20, by, by uh, 2025, year end 2025, otherwise, uh, the ability of registered broker-dealers to quote a lot of fixed income securities is going to be adversely impeded, and it's going to really hurt the electronification advantages we've seen in the fixed income markets over the last several decades. Well, especially on that that last point, that, that seems relatively unfortunate. <laughs> we may be taking a little bit of a of a step backward there but you know a, as you think about the context of you know both the the names rule which has been around for a, a couple decades the SEC rule 15c2-11 for broker dealers it's been around even longer and then you know the the amendments to those rules that that now kind of add some of these additional requirements ultimately i guess and this is a more you know put on your best you know soothsayer hat here as you're thinking about where the industry continues to evolve and how you you can see data continuing to really involve an aspect of compliance or i guess maybe materially impacts compliance in a way where th there is this uh, complete marriage between the firms being able to implement or proper, properly administer the their firm's compliance program and i would say some of the underlying kind of business level supervision type tasks that, that are happening or portfolio management or investment level supervision tasks that are happening in addition to obviously being in a position to make enhancements over time and, and to be able to help sharpen and refine what it does from an internal controls perspective you know as you look out across the horizon are there other areas <laughs> right where you see this marriage between data and compliance continuing to come into play you know we've talked about the names rule we've talked about earlier uh, in part one we talked about you know areas of valuation and liquidity and then now as it relates to broker dealers we've talked about sec rule 15c2-11 but you know what other rule makings that are out there right now either current or proposed or other areas do you do you see in the investment management space where you could see developments in data really being beneficial and impactful in the compliance area 
Great question, Patrick. And, you know, it's, uh, it, it's uh, I like you use the word soothsayer. I'm going to, you know, try to read the tea leaves here. But, you know, following regulation globally across multiple industry verticals, whether that's asset management, bank regulations, uh, insurance regulations, cybersecurity regulations, and even crypto uh, regulations, you see more and more expectations expectations of data playing a larger role in compliance and, and workflows. And I don't see any reason why that trend isn't going to continue as the regulators themselves get better understanding of what data can be made available or should be accessible and why aren't you factoring that into your compliance workflows. So I see this trend continuing. So when I think about my role in creating regulatory products, if the data is already there, and in a lot of cases it is, but in a lot of cases, some of these requirements, and to me, 15C211 is a perfect example of this. This impacts the front office as well, right? Their ability to quote a security over quotation meaning. And I think more and more regulations and essentially the data requirements around those regulations are going to more closely align expectations of the compliance officer at more aligned with the activities of the front office. So I think what, what, what you can expect, Patrick, is you know, a, a deeper relationship between your listeners and their front office counterparts. Yeah. Yeah, that certainly makes sense. And it certainly, you know, that understanding, you know, dovetails, I think, nicely in, in uh, uh, you know, a consistent mantra that we've had on the show, which is that, you know, you, you do want, if you're the chief compliance officer, um, if you're part of a compliance department inside a firm, you know, the idea that we should just kind of sit back and be reactionary uh, constantly and, um, you know, not necessarily have the kind of uh, collaboration that I think is is emblematic in what, what you're saying there with other folks that are um, going to be the kind of frontline and frontward facing folks that are uh, uh, performing the services and, and that are the ones that are executing on the uh, firm's operations and activities. That's just, that's absolutely where compliance should also be a part of that process and have them be involved in and in working in tandem with those folks so that they can, uh, one, better understand exactly what the firm is doing and, and what the the various uh, activities are, but also then build the proper internal controls, r relying on the right data sets, getting access to the right information to make sure that from the um, You've got the business line supervision, but then from the compliance supervision level, they're able to to properly make sure that that firm is going to meet all the requirements underneath whatever that that you know specific rulemaking might be. I completely agree, and, and you know, just to go back to fifteen C two eleven, I've spoken to a lot of broker dealers on this rule, and I've been very pleased to see 
especially at the bigger shops, but I, I would say this more broadly as well, compliance was really done hand in hand between legal and compliance and the front office working together to put in the appropriate policies and procedures in place. And I, I could see regulators more broadly pushing for that type of collaboration with more and more future way they're going to write regulation. I think that's a really astute observation. I think it's certainly a great practice for all of our legal practitioners and compliance officers in the space to be able to continue to develop those relationships with those folks in the front office that are are going to be part of you know executing the firm's operations and and really the ones that are the the front lines for having to comply with many of these items david thank you again <laughs> really really appreciate you coming on the show and, and talking shop with us. We were all about the data here these last couple episodes and um, just really uh, thought you did an excellent job of breaking down, uh, one, what are a lot of complicated subject matter areas and in, in rulemakings, but showing how the, the impact of data on compliance and what uh, firms and their uh, chief compliance officers and other personnel involved in that space can do now to, to help better protect the firm and make sure that they've got a, a, a good program underway. Yeah, my, my pleasure, Patrick. And uh, I will say as a fellow data nerd and regulatory nerd, <laughs> I am amazed at how quickly each of these sessions went. <laughs> right, it uh, it is it is kind of incredible how when when you get rolling, it it does uh, you you just you completely lose lose track of time and and can really get into what what are the details on some really again very interesting and complicated subject matter areas. But but I would be remiss again if I let you go without at least doing maybe one more less technical and maybe a little bit more fun question. I know on the first episode, you know, we talked about just kind of one more broad thing that, that you were looking forward to, you know, throughout the holiday season and into the new year and um, getting a little R&R &R and maybe a break from some of the new new rulemakings and uh, related adopting releases would be a, a welcome gift over the holidays. But maybe I'll switch this up. I'll say, you know, look, we got a lot of things happening here at the end of the year and into 2024. What's one thing that you're really looking forward to watching? You know, like either a television, movie, uh, doesn't matter. What's what, what's one thing you're looking forward to catching up on here in, in the next, call it three to four weeks? Not to be too much of a regulatory nerd, but I am looking forward to some pending and evolving cybersecurity regulation. I think that's an interesting topic that I've been starting to spend some time on. I think there's uh, some interesting ways that in the future data can play a role in helping people in that space as well. <laughs> that is... Well, one, yeah, you've you've gone full blown nerd, and I love every bit about it. It's incredible, and I I do totally agree with you that from an interest standpoint, I am also crazy interested in that. Maybe I could get like a double TB feature. I'd have like that, you know, uh, news news release and kind of the breaking stuff happening on the cybersecurity front, and on the other side, I'll have like National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation <laughs> and and get get my 
my uh, get get my holiday dose of cousin Eddie there uh, uh, coupled with it. So, David, again, thank you so so much uh, for coming on the show. I, I really really appreciate it. Okay, thank you for hosting, Patrick. I really appreciate it. The final part of today's show features another segment of Outtakes. As a quick reminder for some of our newer listeners, if compliance were a TV show, think of this as the bloopers reel, where we look at entertaining, sometimes humorous, and typically unsettling activities carried out at financial services firms that hopefully provide us all with a roadmap of what not to do when facing a similar situation or trying to avoid a similar type compliance breakdown inside of our respective firms. Essentially, leave the these activities on the cutting room floor and outside your compliance program. In today's outtakes, the Securities and Exchange Commission recently ordered 16 wealth management firms to pay a total of $81 million to settle charges as part of the SEC's ongoing pursuit of texting violations on Wall Street. Director of Enforcement Gravier Graywell said, the enforcement aims to, quote, ensure that all regulated entities comply with the record-keeping requirements, which are essential to our ability to monitor and enforce compliance with the federal securities laws. All of the firms that were cited uh, acknowledged wrongdoing and their conduct violated record-keeping provisions of the federal securities laws. The SEC said that the firm's texting issues were, quote, pervasive and longstanding. And from at least 2019 or 2020, employees at all of these firms communicated through personal text messages about the business of their employers. Uh, the investment advisor firms also admitted that employees sent and received off-channel communications related to, quote, recommendations made or proposed to be made and advice given or proposed to be given. A substantial majority of these off-channel communications were not maintained in records, and those failures involved employees at all levels of authority, including supervisors and senior managers. Um, the firms were also censured in order to cease future violations of the relevant record-keeping provisions, and they all agreed to retain independent compliance consultants to help conduct reviews of those record-keeping practices. In the past two years, the SEC and federal regulators have really cracked down on investment advisor firms and broker-dealer firms for their unauthorized texting-related and other messaging app-related violations. Without giving the names of any of the firms specifically referenced in the most recent enforcement action, let's just say that they are some of the biggest, most noteworthy names in the industry. And one firm said in a particular statement that it noted its settlement is one of over 40 that the SEC has brought over the last couple years. If it's not clear by now, it's certainly should be that the SEC is stating very clearly if you are texting or messaging clients or even other internal platforms or you know in addition to clients your internal employees on a platform that is not currently being archived in a way that is required under the record keeping rules you will not just be subject to potential deficiencies you you will be subject to enforcement uh, firms would do well to take note and to start making sure that your firm has the proper record keeping protocols in place to help support all of your business activities of your financial professionals. And that will do it for today's show. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Calfee and the National Society of Compliance Professionals, and extend a big thank you to our guest, David Scalzetti, for sharing his keen insights regarding the impact of data on compliance and how firms can use data to help successfully navigate new regulatory requirements in the mutual fund and broker-dealer spaces. Please join us again next time on the Securities Compliance Podcast, where we help you put compliance in context. Please check us out on LinkedIn. You can search for 
or Compliance and Contact Podcast, or on X using the handle at CompliancePod. You can like us and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your favorite podcasts, or go to ComplianceAndContextPodcast.com to listen and learn more. 